We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. And last week we discussed the events that immediately followed the stoning of Stephen. The disciples were scattered due to the persecution that was happening there. But as they were scattered, they preached the gospel wherever they went. And I thought about that, and you think persecution is a driving force in evangelism. The churches that are the strongest are the ones that are in countries that aren't allowed to be. The Chinese church, the Soviet church, all those that are illegal to be Christians, they're the strongest. They put up with the worst and the hardest form of persecution. They've got to hide, and yet they survive. And sometimes I wonder if we miss out because it's actually so easy for us as Christians. And we don't have any kind of resistance. We don't have to tolerate and endure the persecution that others do. And does that make our witness a little bit weaker? So as they're scattered, you have Stephen getting stoned. Then you have Philip, who, as we discovered before, was another food bank worker. He was one of the guys that the apostles picked to serve food and feed the widows. He was also forced to leave, and he goes to Samaria. And this is the gospel. This is, this is where he shares the gospel with the town, and many get saved. Later, the apostles show up and pray for the believers to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, in that crowd of people who came to know Christ was a guy named Simon. We talked about that last week. And he followed the crowd because, for him, it appeared that there may be something in it for him. Rather than what could he do to further the kingdom, he was in it for himself. Due to the crowd coming to know Jesus, he was a sorcerer, he was a magician, however you want to classify that, and he was pretty popular in his town. Famous, people came to him. He, had a, he was well-to-do and people knew who he was. But as people were getting saved, he was losing that influence. He was losing that particular part of who he was. The people who were becoming saved... They knew what God's word says, or God's word says not to have anything to do with witchcraft or astrology or whatever. And so they were, they were kind of backing off this guy. And so the new believers were leaving this guy high and dry. He was losing his, his respect. He was losing his business. He was losing his influence in the town. I, I, I thought about that. Do, do churches today, do Christians today, have a positive influence on the town in which they live. Do the things that we do, things that we are, does that negate what may happen that's evil in the town? Do we believers, as believers, become more mature and more Christ-like, and does that affect the community that we live in? Studies show that towns where people are religious and spiritually consistent have less violent crime. I read an article this week I kind of knew this, but I was still shocked to hear it. There's a guy by the name of Craig Gross. He has a ministry. His ministry is to those who are addicted to pornography. And through the article, he was saying that many of his members in his ministry are believers. Now, you kind of have heard that before. You're shocked to hear it again. But his statement was, if Christians, instead of picketing and boycotting, would stop spending money on those items, the businesses would almost certainly fail. Why? Because we're withdrawing from the evil in the city, in the world. And the question is, do we have that effect 
on society. Not that we're actively picketing, but simply our withdrawal from the things that we know we shouldn't be doing causes them to dry up. I thought about, and I'm not saying this is a good one way or the other, but sports for schools have become godlike in their attraction. And now many sports games are played on Wednesday night, Sunday morning. And so if believers withdrew from their sports, would they be forced to change their schedule as opposed to us acquiescing and being a part of it because that's the way it is? If we withdrew, would we make them change their schedule? I think we would. But it would take all of us to do that. And that goes with anything. I, I remember, uh, and I've, I've been guilty of this, and I'm, I think we all are. Years ago, I would go into a store on a Sunday afternoon or Sunday morning, and I would see some of our church members that were working in the store. And I would talk to them, and in the middle of the conversation, he would say to me, you know, you're coming here is why I have to miss church. And I thought, how many Christians shop on Sunday? That requires other Christians who work there to be there on Sundays. If we as Christians actually withdrew from that, would it, would it change the worker schedule? I think we're beyond that now, but I think maybe that had, would have an impact on the people that were doing it. Do we have a positive influence on the community in which we live? The people were affecting Simon because they were withdrawing from him, not participating in that. Verse 16 in Acts chapter 16 says, this isn't the only place that, that Christians were affecting the businesses there. It says, one day as we were going down to the place of prayer, we met a demon-possessed slave girl. She was a fortune teller who earned a lot of money for her masters. Acts 16, 18. This went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and spoke to the demon within her. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He said, and instantly it left her. Her master's hope, hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities in the marketplace. And again in Acts 19 it says, but about that time serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. It began with Demetrius a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called the craftsmen together along with others employed in related trades and addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business. And as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't gods at all. And this is happening not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the area. The pick businesses weren't picketed. Christians were simply withdrawing from those businesses, not participating in them. And by attrition, they were going under. We as Christians should have a positive influence on our society. Another way to think about that is churches should never be influenced by the businesses around it, but rather the churches should influence them we should have an influence on the businesses around us in our community. Acts 8, 18, going back to Simon, it says, When Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given when the apostles placed their hands upon people's heads, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, 
so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Simon now wanted to be a part of this, not because it was spiritual, but because it gave someone the ability to maybe push him back again into prominence. He would have something else in his tool belt to be able to offer the community to help facilitate his career. How many have ever heard the term cultural Christianity? It's something that's relatively new, but it's been around for a while. The term has been around for a while. Years ago, and I'm glad that this trend is kind of ending, people would go to church because, not because they wanted to receive something from God. They would go to church because it was maybe a place to network and find new businesses and talk to people that may influence their career. They went because it was a great place to meet and influence and be influenced by other people. Maybe you got to, you go to a larger church and so-and-so from this particular business is there. You go there to hang with him and talk and maybe do business. Or some politician was there, you go and you get cozy with them. Church was a meeting place, not a place where people would go to meet God. Not everyone, but for that instance. And that actually is waning now. People realize that, hey, that's not happening so much anymore, and they're not getting the benefit that they used to get. So people that were, you'd have a church full of people who were going to church, not necessarily all of them were Christians. They were going because it was beneficial to their personal life, their business, whatever. And that's exactly what Simon was trying to do here. He was trying to get in with the movement, get in with the new church in order to facilitate his business, not to get more closer to God or anything spiritual. Think about uh, election day. How many, when you see election commercials, you invariably see this politician or that candidate either going to a church, talking about a church, carrying the biggest black King James Bible you can find. Why? Because he thinks, or they think, it raises their status in the community. And in reality, it does. And the reason it does is because up until, well, actually, no candidate, the Huffington Post in 2017 says this, and they're Huffington Post, if you know them, they're not any friend to Christianity. According to them, there are no open atheists in Congress holding a position anywhere in Congress. And only one out of all 535 have designed or called themselves unaffiliated. The article also stated that no avowed atheist has ever ever entered Congress in the 200-some years. A few have come out in office, but they never got elected on that basis. So in effect, and I'm looking at the people in Congress now, don't have a warm and fuzzy about most of them. So what were they doing? They were using God's house, they were using Christianity or faith as a means or an opportunity to advance their career or their business. And you're going to find out that the apostles felt the same way that I do, that God's house should never be a business opportunity. And if it begins to happen that way, it should be handled accordingly. And the apostles do just that. In verse 20, it says, Peter replied, May your money perish with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Turn away from your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. 
for I can see that you are full of bitterness and held captive by sin. For Simon, this was just another bit of magic, devoid of any spiritual influence. He didn't want anything having to do with God or, or anything else like that. He wanted it to advance his own personal agenda. For him, it was a means to an end. And I thought about this is the same as when Jesus overturned the temples or the tables in the temple. If you're familiar with what was required at the temple, the people would have to come with their sacrifices. And they would have to have their sacrifices inspected by the folks at the temple to make sure they qualified. No blemish, all that kind of stuff. They had to qualify to be a good sacrifice. And the people at the tables were disqualifying everybody in order for them to have to purchase their sheep or their offering. And so Jesus saw that it was nothing to do with spirituality. It was all a means of making money off of God's people. And so that's when Jesus came in and took the, start the whip and the, knocking the, chair, and the tables over. That's what he thinks about using God's name and God's um, place of worship and God's people as a, we, a means to make a business, make money. doesn't mean we don't want to operate. We don't do that. It just means you don't do it for that sole purpose. Peter quickly understood what was going on. And for him, I believe it was the discerning of spirits. This guy wasn't really a believer. He says, your heart's not right with God. You're still stuck in sin. Had not asked for forgiveness. So Peter had to discern for himself through the power of the Spirit that this guy was not really a believer because he went through all the motions. He was there. He, was a, he, he got water baptized. He did the things that everyone else was doing, and it appeared right to everybody else. Peter, however, recognized through the discerning of spirits that this guy was not a Christian. And so he called him on it. And what was Simon's response to that? Verse 24 says, Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things won't happen to me. Now, look at that. What terrible things was Simon talking about? Because in all of Peter's exclamation was basically the only thing that was going to happen to him, he was going to lose his money. He was going to die broke. And so for Simon, that was terrible. That was terrible for him. He wasn't concerned about getting right with God. He didn't care about forgiveness. He wasn't seeking to apologize. He simply wanted to avoid judgment. God, don't let me die broke. There's a sentence that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. I'm going to change that, and you've probably heard this too. He who dies with the most toys still dies. I'm reading a book now. It's called when, when the Game's Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. And it's talking about all the things we accumulate over life. At the end of your life, it stays. Like when you play a Monopoly game, how many play Monopoly? I can't stand Monopoly. It just takes too long. It's too involved, too much thinking involved. But if you play Monopoly, your goal, man, is to win, to get the houses and the hotels. And guess what happens? At the end of the game, you're the winner. You fold the board up, everything goes back in the box. And you walk away the same as you started with. Nothing changes in your life. And that's basically the, the theme of the book. No matter how much you accumulate and how much wealth and material things you have, at the end of your life, it all goes back in the box, and you are the same person that you die the same way. No U-Hauls behind any hearses. 
All he wanted was to not die broke. If you die, you're broke. You have no money. Take nothing with you. And notice he was asking the apostles to pray for him. He wasn't asking to pray for himself. How many people have asked you to pray for them? But they have no intention of knowing anything more about God than that. Please pray for me. I got this going on. I'm not ever going to go to church. And I'm not ever going to get right with God. But can you pray for me? How many think God hears that prayer? The Bible says that God hears the prayers of the righteous, but the wicked are far from him. I believe the only prayer that God hears of an unbeliever is the prayer of salvation. From that point on, God hears your prayer. Now, the Bible says it rains on the just and the unjust, and people get blessed that are wicked. But as far as praying for God to intervene, I don't think that works. Peter's response was basically, you better get right with God, and if you don't, that's what's exactly going to happen to you. You are going to die broke. Verse 22 says, turn from your wickedness and pray, for the Lord, pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. It doesn't say that Peter prayed for him. Peter's response is, you better, you better pray for yourself. You better get right because my prayers aren't going to matter. You need to pray for yourself. Psalm 66, 16 says, come and listen, all you who fear the Lord, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed a sin in my heart, my Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Why did the psalmist get paid attention to? Because he confessed his sin. He got right with God first. Simon's example shows us that people can go through all the motions. He, he followed the other people around. He got water baptized. He did everything that he was supposed to do on the outside. But he wasn't changed on the inside. He wasn't right with God. I assume from what Peter says to pray for himself that they didn't pray for him. We don't know. And we don't know what happens to him after this encounter. Maybe he gets saved. Maybe he doesn't. We don't know. It doesn't address that. So we're looking at what's happening right now. Simon, to all, for all intents and purposes, looked like a Christian. He did everything that everybody else did. The difference was he was doing it for the wrong reason and he was not a regenerated person. He did not ask for God to forgive him of his sin. Churches are filled with people in the same place. And I think as I was at that funeral, I was looking around thinking, how many folks are here? They look like they're doing everything right, but their heart's not regenerated. And the sad part is it was not, not talked about at the service. Whenever I do a funeral, I make sure that there's a gospel in there somewhere. I've even had altar calls at funerals. Why, what better time do you have than that? People who don't know when they go to church are in your church. And they're thinking about their own mortality because somebody they, that they know died. What better opportunity to to reach someone for Christ at that moment. And it's just, it's really sad when you don't know where people are 
and you're afraid that they're banking on going through the motions like Simon did and not having their heart right with God. And the thing is, I think Simon thought he was right. He did everything else. I must be right. A lot of people that are walking around thinking they're doing it right, but they're missing it because they don't have the relationship. Verse 25 says, after, after testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news to them too. Now remember, persecution was still happening, and yet they're going back to carry out their call. And in the trip back to Jerusalem, it wasn't just a destination. They used the opportunity along the way to preach the gospel. How many know who Gary Smalley is? He's a, he was a counselor years ago. I, I, I think he's still alive. I'm not sure if he's passed away or not. But he, we did a marriage seminar here using his videotapes, and he's hilarious. If you ever get a chance to listen to him, he's, he's hilarious. But he said this one thing about the difference between men and women. He said, men, when you go on a trip, you have a destination. Your goal is to get to that place. The women, not so much. The trip is part of the vacation or the, or the joy. The guys, just, let's get there. We have to endure the trip to get there. And the least we have to stop, the better off we are. So that's why when we were kids, we used to bring milk jugs in the car because my dad would not stop. It was all boys, so we were good. But when we go on vacation, we, we drive, and we always have a van load of people with us when we go. So we have to make the trip enjoyable. Otherwise, it's going to be miserable for everybody. So what the whole point is, while you're going somewhere, use the trip as an opportunity to do something for God. Don't wait till you get there to start preaching. Use every opportunity that God gives you along the way to minister. It's not a destination. It's the ministry all along the way. If God gives you an, open, an opportunity or an open window to share, no matter where you are, always, what's the Bible say, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask you, the reason for the hope within you. Someone asks you, be able to share with them what God's done for you. So Peter and John went home, but God called Philip to go somewhere else. Think about what's happening in Samaria at this moment. It's like a revival. Philip goes down and preaches. A bunch of people get saved. The apostles come down and lay hands on them. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happens. More and more people are getting saved. It's a revival. And God tells Philip, the guy who started it, all right, you're done here. I want you to go someplace else. Now, if I'm Philip, and my church is growing, it's, things are great, things are happening, I'm thinking, no, I'm going to stay. Because, A, it may fall apart if I'm not here. And plus, I want to receive some reward for all the work I've done. That wasn't Philip, though. God called him to go someplace else. Leave the revival because, A, you didn't start it. And, B, it's not going to fall apart if you're not there. So Philip leaves and God tells him to go someplace else. 
So now you have a leader of a brand new ministry growing and exciting. And he says in verse 26, As for Philip, the angel of the Lord said to him, Go south from the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip didn't flinch. He went where God told him to go. And he doesn't even know why he's going. He just said, start walking. I'll tell you when you get there. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I like to have, I have a GPS. You all have GPSs now. But before GPSs, we had these things they called maps. How many remember getting those at the gas station? And we would get a highlighter and, and show the map on the way down. I want to know exactly where I'm going, exactly which way I'm going. I don't want any surprises along the way. I was heading up to Amanda's two weeks ago, up 222. And I get, you know, we're doing 65 miles an hour up 222, and all of a sudden 222 is closed. Remember? It was flooded. And so they took us on this detour around. Well, I hate detours. I don't know. I hate not knowing where I'm going and what time I'm supposed to get there. It just, I have to know exactly where I'm going and exactly how I'm getting there. Philip didn't know where he was going other than go on this road, start walking, I'm going to take you there. I'm not, I'm not Philip. Verse 27 says, So he did, and he met a treasurer, the treasurer of Ethiopia, a eunuch with great authority under the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning. Seated in his carriage, he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I would call this a divine appointment. God set this up long before Philip even got a call from the angel. And I think that God still does that today. God puts people in your path. God puts people where you're going to be who are just ripe for the gospel. And the, the funny thing is, those are people that other people are praying for and may have been praying for for a long time. And you get to be the one who leads him to Christ. You just happen to be in the right place at the right time. What's the Bible say? One waters, one plants, God gives the increase. If you're like me, you are praying for someone to go to friends and family that you know because A, I'm not there, and B, they don't listen to me when I am. So please, Lord, send somebody to them. Let someone be the recipient of their salvation when, when I'm praying for them here. And so this eunuch, Philip does nothing but show up. And God puts everything together. And this guy we see gets saved. You may be just walking along the road and God puts something in your path that is just meant for you. And you're the one that God's going to use to bring this person to Christ. Like Jesus, he was willing to leave the crowds to bless one person. Think about it. The angel could have done the work, right? One guy, the angel could have showed up in flames and just told the guy what he needed to hear. But whose job is it? It's not the angel's job. Our job is to spread the gospel. It is not the job of the angels to do that. So, it's a job given to us. It's our job to be alert for those divine appointments. 
for God to place us in a situation or even a particular place or event to minister to one person, drawing you away from the miracles that God may be doing here to go one place to be used by God. And the question is, are we really spiritually that alert to do that? Our old pastor used to talk about a teacher he had in college up at Valley Forge when it was called Eastern. And he said, there's, there's this guy on campus, he was so attuned to the Spirit of God that he would, as soon as the Spirit of God would speak, he would, he would react. And he said he was walking down the street one day, and the Holy Spirit says, move to your right, two steps. And he moved to his right, two steps. And right behind him was a guy with a knife going to stab him. Had he not listened at that particular moment, at that time, he might have died. But he was so attuned that he didn't question it, he just did it. And sometimes I wish I could be like that. Lord, just let me be so alert that, man, I just react right away. And I think all of us need to be alert to those appointments so that when those things happen, we're ready. And we don't have to be spiritual giants to do it. You don't have to be a theologian to do it. All you have to do is be available to do it. And what's the Bible say? That God will put the words in your mouth. God will put scripture in your mouth that you never thought you knew. But God will use you for that appointment. Now, God was preparing this guy even before Philip gets there. And I believe that God prepares the hearts of the people as we come in contact with them so that we're able to talk to them. They're already ready. They're already, the, the, the dirt's already plowed up, man. The seeds are there. Our job is just to, to get it. God sets up the appointments, but you have to be alert to when they are. I remember when I was in Florida and my mother was in, in hospice care. She was there for about two weeks. And I remember every night I'd get on to visit her, and every night the room was packed with my family and friends and everybody else. I never got a chance to talk to her. And so every night would go by, places packed. I'm like, ah, come on. Everybody go home. Get out. Get out. And I remember one Thursday night, I think it was a Thursday, and I'm sitting at the house going, you know what? I've been down there every night this week. I don't. I'm just going to skip tonight. I'll get on tomorrow. And so I sat there for about 10 minutes, and I don't know what it was. It must have been God. God prompted me, go down now. All right. So I told him, I'm going to get out and visit my mom. I just feel I should get out and talk to her. So I get down there, and there's nobody there, nobody in the room. And so I had about an hour to talk to her. I talked to her about Jesus. I prayed with her, and I believe I, she got saved that night. She died the next day or so. Divine appointment. Nothing to do with me other than doing what God had prompted me to do. And that's everybody. Nothing super spiritual about that. Just are you available to do that? People may know their Bible. They may read their Bible, but they may not know what they're reading. This guy was in, in his chariot reading this Isaiah and not understanding what it says. People can know their Bible and not be saved. People can read it every day and not be saved. That was this guy. So God sends Philip to explain to him what he was reading. Verse 29 says, The Holy Spirit said to Philip, Go over and walk alongside that carriage. Sometimes we, what we think are our own thoughts and our own ideas are actually promptings of the Holy Spirit. When I said I'm going to go visit my mom, I thought it was me. 
I didn't think it was the Holy Spirit prompting me. I just felt this urge to go. If you feel that urge and you think it's you, it may be the Holy Spirit directing you. Verse 30 says, Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. So he asked, do you understand what you're reading? Just like there's a lot of people today, they want to know the truth. They want to know truth. And they need someone to explain it to them. Especially in a world today where truth is such, in such low regard and so little of it available. He needs someone to explain it to them and lead them to Jesus. People really want to know the truth. They want to know what the truth about faith is. And verse 31 says, How can I when there's no one to instruct me? And he begged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. I really think that there's such a hunger for the truth that so many things that aren't the truth are filling the void of truth. All the occult, many self-help books, astrology, all these things that people are turning to because they want to know truth and they think that's where truth is. People have a void of truth and they want to know what it is. And the great thing is we know it. We know it. And we know it not because someone told us, we know it because we've experienced it personally. These people are like Pilate that said, what is truth? People are starved. They want to know what the truth is. They're starved for it. And we have it. And all we have to do is explain what we know about it. We don't have to get real deep. What do you know about what's happened in your life? What has God changed in you? Next verse, the passage of Scripture that he had been reading was this. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was humiliated and received no justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, was Isaiah talking about himself or someone else? So Philip began with the same scripture and then used many others to tell him about the good news of Christ. He didn't have to go into any theological debate, but what he did do was bring the conversation around to Jesus. When you talk to people and you have the opportunity to share, it's easy, it's easy to get drawn off on a thousand different tangents. You have to bring it back to Jesus. Bring it back to salvation. Simple, simple faith. Verse 36, as they rode along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop, and they went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. A couple of things on this one. For him, it wasn't enough to just know. We have to be able to explain what it is we know. Not in depth, but we need to have a simple understanding of what it is we believe so that people, when they ask you, you can simply tell them. When you fill out an application at, at CSY for employment, one of the questions on there is, can you lead someone to Christ? And give me the scriptures to do that. Why? Because the teachers may have an opportunity to lead some of their students to Christ. And they want to be sure that we know how to do it. And we check the scriptures. Is it the Roman road, which is the one I was taught? Or there's others, you know, that do that. Everyone should have a, a simple understanding of how to lead someone to Christ. 
And once you have that understanding, God can use that. And man, then you get to lead someone to Christ and you see the joy in their life and how their lives are changed because you are simply available. And this guy also wasn't going to be a closet Christian. He wanted everyone to know, so he wanted to be publicly water baptized. It wasn't sort of a, you know, don't tell anybody. He wants to go out and get water baptized so everyone around him can see what's going on. Now, some of your translations don't have verse 37 in it. It's one of those that were found in not many manuscripts. The King James and the New King James still put it in there with a little note saying, and yeah, this isn't found in the best manuscript. But it reads this way. It says, Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, whether or not this is actually canon scripture, nothing about that sentence is unbiblical. It is true. Warren Wiersbe says this, given this, this verse. This guy was an important man, which meant he probably had an entourage with him. And so, if this verse is in fact what happened, he spoke loudly enough for the caravan to hear what happened to him. And he wanted those around him to see him get water baptized. He was speaking boldly to everyone who could hear and publicly doing it so they could see a change in his life. Do we speak that boldly when people are around us? Or do we keep it low-key so that no one hears and we're not offending anybody and we just keep quiet? I'm going to close with this story, quote, in October 1857, Hudson Taylor began to minister in Ningpo, China, and he led a Mr. Nyai to Christ. The man was overjoyed and wanted to share his faith with others. Mr. Nyai asked him, how long have you had the good tidings in England? Because that's where he's from. And Hudson said, England has had the gospel for many centuries. Mr. Nyai said, my father died seeking the truth. Why didn't you come sooner? Because I'm going to say that Taylor had no answer to that penetrating question. How many people have we shared Christ with? Or do we kind of quietly let them live what they want to live and we keep our faith to ourselves? People are seeking the truth. They may not know what they're seeking. And they may not know that what you have is what they're seeking. But unless you are able to talk to them about it, you're never going to know. And maybe they die without ever having had the truth shared with them. Now, you would think that in our country that there can't possibly be anyone who doesn't heard the name of Jesus. But it's amazing to hear how many people have really wrong misconceptions of who Jesus is because they just don't know any truth. And when we know the truth and we don't share it with someone and we know what's going to happen to them when they die, how do we feel about that the next day? If they die and you had something that they could have changed their eternity and you didn't tell them. 
What did, what did God say to Ezekiel? You tell the people the truth. If they don't listen, it's on them. But if you don't tell them, it's on you. Each of us has been given a job, a ministry, to be able to share with people out there. The reason the rapture hasn't happened yet is because God's still merciful for the people that don't know Christ. It could happen any day. And that means everybody we know and love and care about that, don't, that does not know Christ is left behind to endure that. And if they've heard the gospel and rejected it before the rapture, they do not get a second chance during the tribulation. How many know that? If they've heard it and rejected it and the rapture happens, their opportunity is lost. I don't have the scriptures for that. I can tell you what they are. They don't have a second chance after the rapture happens. So our job is to be able to tell them today and keep telling them and keep telling them. And as I pray, God nag them until they can't stand it anymore. And that may be our job, to nag them until they can't stand it anymore. Would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? Every head bowed, every eye closed, if you would. Most of you here have been here long enough to hear all of my stories over and over and over again until you're probably sick of hearing them. But in the off chance that there may be somebody here who hasn't, I was that guy that sat in church for three years and everyone thought I was a Christian. I was a nice guy. And when I finally raised my hand to be saved, the collective church had a stroke because they thought I was a Christian. That just means you can sit in the church for years and people think that you're a Christian. And you know that you're not. You just come because, for whatever reason. And you put on an act, you... you play the game like I did until one day God gets a hold of you and makes you make a choice. If you're here, you're not here by accident and you may have been a part of this church for years or you may be relatively new to this church. The question is still the same. Do you have a relationship with Christ? Do you know that if you died today, you would be with Jesus? The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. Not think, not doubt. When you become a Christian, you know in your spirit and in your mind and in your heart that you have eternal life. If you're here and you don't have that assurance and you're not sure, chances are pretty good that you don't really have that relationship. And you're here because God wanted you to hear something or experience something that is unique to you. Something to get your attention. Something that speaks right to your heart that only you can understand. Or only ministers to you where you are. And the Bible says that no one comes to God unless the Spirit of God draws him. And that simply means if you're thinking about God, 
is because God is making you think about Him. Just like I thought it was my idea to go visit my mom, it was actually God putting that thought in my head. And if you're here and you don't have that relationship, but you want that, you want truth, you want to experience exactly what we're talking about today, the supernatural through the power of God. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. The Bible says God's knocking on your heart. But it's up to you to open that door. For the rest of us here, Lord, our time is short, whether our physical time or the time before you return. Our time is short. Lord, I pray that each one of us is able to be used by you to have a positive effect on the kingdom of God. That you set up divine appointments for each one of us. That you allow us to share the truth as we know it through your word to the people we come into contact with. You prepare their hearts. You prepare the time. You prepare everything, Lord, and allow us to be alert. When we walk in, Lord, help us to be alert. That is the person to whom you've sent us. And then, Lord, speak through us. Father, I thank you that people took the time with us and shared Christ with us when we didn't want to hear it. But God, you were long-suffering with us, and you brought us in. You allowed us to come to the point where we accepted the truth of the gospel. And Lord, I know that nothing is too hard for you. And those people we think that will never come to know you, Jesus, those are the folks that we believe that nothing is too hard for God. But Lord, it does require us to do what you've called us to do. So Lord, I pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit, anoint us to carry forth your word, allow us to be sensitive to the places to which you've called us and to the people who are ready to hear what we had to say. Father, bless us as we leave today. Anoint us to carry out your ministry. Father, we'll thank you for allowing us to be a part of the greatest thing the earth has ever seen, carrying out the work of the God of the universe. We're your servants, Lord. Anoint us to do just that, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Have a tremendous week. Let me know how God's working, the divine appointments that you have, that God sets up for you.